Some of the sharpest minds in the church today are employed in connecting the theological riches of Scripture into a cohesive whole in answering the question, how does the Bible hold together from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation? And how does it hold together in the narrative books, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, in the Prophets, and in the Gospels, and in Paul and Peter and the writings of John? How do you put these many different pieces together into one story of God's unfolding plan of redemption is an extraordinarily demanding task. And yet over the last few years, we've seen a rise in attempts made at whole Bible biblical theology. In 2010, Jim Hamilton published God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And just one year later, Greg Beale published A New Testament Biblical Theology, which is really a way of putting the Bible together through the lens of the New Testament. And it was my book of the year in 2011. Last year came Kingdom Through Covenant, a biblical theological understanding of the covenants by two Baptists, Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam. Biblical theology is also being done in various different formats by guys like Don Carson and the series he edits, New Studies in Biblical Theology. And perhaps one day Dr. Carson will write a whole Bible biblical theology of his own. Nevertheless, right now there seems to be a strong interest in whole Bible biblical theology in the church, and I couldn't be more grateful for the trend. More and more pastors and Christians are wanting to enter the complex details of the biblical storyline in order to put it all together. This summer, a new addition to the lineup of works along these lines will be added from the pen of Dr. Tom Schreiner. His forthcoming book is, I think, his best one yet, and it's titled The King and His Beauty, A Biblical Theology of the Old and New Testaments. It will be released on July 15th from Baker. At over 700 pages long, it's a serious book, but it's not a difficult book to read either. It's surprisingly accessible for its length, and in fact, in comparison to books in this category of similar length, I think it's the clearest and the least intimidating, and I think it will serve a broad audience of pastors and lay people as they study God's Word together. It's not only one of the top books of 2013, in my opinion, but it also has the potential to be a game-changing resource for the local church. To talk more about his book and the challenges of doing biblical theology, I put Thomas Schreiner on the line. Dr. Schreiner is a decorated theologian and serves as the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He joined us from his office in Louisville, Kentucky. Books of this nature are massive undertakings, and I began by asking him what led him to believe that now was the time to tackle such a project. You know, actually, uh, Tony, for many, many years, I had in my mind that I wanted to write uh, a Pauline theology, and then a New Testament theology, and then a whole Bible theology. The, the interesting thing is, after I finished the Pauline theology, I felt I'm just too tired to do the New Testament theology. I, maybe I won't do it. So I wrote a commentary in between, but then I got the energy and inspiration, so to speak, to write that. And then the same thing happened to me after I wrote the New Testament theology. I thought, you know, I did want to write that whole Bible theology, but I think I'm just too exhausted to do that right now. And I wrote another commentary in between, and it seems as if that rhythm, after I wrote the commentary in the midst of writing it, I, I got the vision and the energy to write a whole Bible theology. So and I think it, it's helpful for me. I'm almost 60 to have written it near the end of my career. We'll see how much more is left so that I've, I've spent a lot of time studying and teaching and preaching the scriptures. So I, I, it felt like a good time for me. In another sense, of course, I could al it could always use more study. In some ways, I feel like I've just stuck my big toe into the water. I mean, it's, it's massive, isn't it? There's, there's more than any one person can comprehend here. 
For a guy like myself who will never write a biblical theology like this, how hard is it to write this? Well, I, I, think, I think it is difficult, and it is hard. And as I said, uh, there's no sense of mastery there. And, you know, it's one reason I did it book by book. I thought of trying to do it thematically, and that felt uh, just too overwhelming to me. How do I cover everything in the New Testament and the Old Testament without going uh, more book by book? Now, there are some parts of the book, of course, I put authors together. Yeah, it was quite an undertaking, but I, I learned so much. Uh, and that's one of the things I enjoy about writing. As I write, I learn from so many others who've gone before me. And, and as it is often said, I stand upon their shoulders and stood upon their shoulders. And, and they were of an enormous help to me. Hmm. I think I think the great strength of your book is its cosmological and eschatological framework. Uh, even if you don't use the technical language, I think this is a really difficult concept for a lot of Bible students to understand, especially in the tensions and in the contrasts that we read in the New Testament. Speaking especially in terms of inaugurated eschatology in Christ, this already not yet, how important is it to understand inaugurated eschatology for putting the whole Bible together? Yes. Well, I, I think the most helpful term, and, and you've already used it, I, I believe, is the already, not yet. God's, God's promises have already been fulfilled, and yet they haven't been uh, completely fulfilled. I, I really think this is the key to understanding the Scriptures, or at least I could say one of the keys. If, if you don't understand the already not yet, you, you can't understand the Bible. And I, and I think the Jewish people in the time of Jesus who rejected Jesus did not understand that the promises that we find in the Old Testament about the coming of the kingdom or the fulfillment of the new creation, in Jesus Christ, those promises have been fulfilled, but yet not completely. We, so we could just take any, a number of themes, Tony, whatever you're interested in talking about. But if we pick up, say, the new creation theme, we find in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, that we are a new creation. And yet, it's clear from Romans 8 and many other passages that, that this world and Christians are still stained by sin. So, that, so the, this promise of a new creation is fulfilled in part, but not in full. And, and the same is true if you want to talk about sanctification. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are holy. Paul says that to the Corinthians, doesn't he? And yet, the Corinthians, as is very apparent in reading First and Second Corinthians, struggle with sin. So, so there's a fulfillment of God's promises, and, and yet there's this tension in which they're not completely fulfilled. And I think one of the things that's so helpful about this, it helps us understand church history. It helps us understand our own lives. We see, we see the church has done glorious things throughout its history, and yet it's also done some terrible things. And if we're honest, I think that's true of our own lives as well. That's a manifestation of the already not yet. We are, we are saved, and yet salvation is a final and ultimate reality. It's not, it's not consummated yet. Our salvation has arrived, but it has not yet been completely fulfilled. And you pick this up so clearly in Paul's theology. I mean, how does this play out for the Christian life? There's a, there's a cosmology in Paul, this old creation, new creation, and we live in this tension. How would you, how would you explain that? Yeah, another, another way to look at it from, from the Pauline perspective, the, the, new test, the Old Testament, that is, promises when, when God's 
saving promises are fulfilled, there'll be a new creation, and, and God will give of his spirit, and all creation will be renewed. So the New Testament, Paul very clearly teaches that, that because of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Spirit has been poured out upon us. Yet the Spirit is the, the down payment, the guarantee of the full inheritance. So, so when we think of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself uh, testifies and symbolizes very well the already not yet. We truly do have the Holy Spirit. We are, we are regenerated. We have, we have new life. And yet, yet the new creation hasn't come in its fullness. We, we still struggle with, uh, with sin. We're not, we're not totally transformed yet uh, by the Holy Spirit. Yes, and along these lines, on page 552 of your book, you write this, quote, In the polarized opposition between the flesh and the spirit, we see Paul's apocalyptic theology, the antagonism between this age and the age to come, end quote. Speak to the Christian who feels the, the sin tension. We all do. I mean, indwelling sin remains in us. How can we think of sanctification from a cosmic perspective? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Tony. I think I think if we think of the first of all of the two Adams, Adam brought uh, sin and death into the world. Uh, Christ brought righteousness and life into the world. So, from a more cosmic perspective, the question is whether we're in Adam or whether we're in Christ. So, so death and sin, which Adam brought into the world, are conceived of in the scriptures and, and in Paul in particular as, as these powers, the, it, almost these two towers, right? These two powers that reign over us, that, that control us. So Paul can say we're, we're slaves to sin. And, and if we pick up Hebrews here, it's interesting how Hebrews, too, picks up this idea that we're, we're slaves to death. We're enslaved to sin and we're enslaved to death. When Christ came as the last Adam, he conquered through his death and resurrection, he conquered these powers so that, so that death and sin are now dethroned. And Romans 6 is very clear on this. We're, we're no longer enslaved to death and sin. They're no longer our masters. They, they no longer tyrannize over us. They no longer control us. And, and it's, it's very interesting that if we look at Romans 6, those are the words he uses, words of lordship, rule, reigning. So for a Christian, if we look at this more cosmic uh, background, these powers, sin and death, have, have been defeated for us. Our victory is sure. But here's the tension, of course. Paul calls upon us in Romans 6, doesn't he? Don't let sin reign. Those who have been freed from sin's dominion are still not to let it reign. So even though we've been liberated from the tyranny of sin, we're still called upon to let that victory be translated into our lives, so to speak. And uh, of course, that won't happen. That won't happen in the new creation, in the final new creation, in the consummation of things. We we won't need those commands anymore. So the very fact that we need those commands signifies to the truth that we live in this tension between the the first Adam and the last Adam. Yes, and Paul has in the first Adam, second Adam, this new creation, old creation, these categories, and and this explains the tension we feel in the Christian life. Uh, 
Is, is this theme echoed in the Gospels as being in or out of the kingdom? Are these overlapping themes, this, this first Adam, second Adam, new creation, old creation, and whether one is in the kingdom or out of it? Yeah, I, th- I, think, there's a, I think there's a correlation between the already not yet and Paul and the notion of the kingdom and the Gospels. Interestingly enough, I mean, the Old Testament doesn't speak a lot about the kingdom per se, although that's what I titled my book, uh, the, the King and His Beauty. But I think the concept of the kingdom, the concept of God's rule is there. When Jesus picks up this language of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and he sees uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom in his ministry, where, where does he see that fulfillment? Uh, one of the places I think I'd like to start is he sees it in his miracles, in his exorcisms, in his, uh, in his healings. So we can see that Jesus triumphs over, over death, over disease, and over demons. So I, I think you can already see the parallel with Paul, because in Paul, it's, it's sin and death who are the powers. When Jesus comes in his kingdom, these are the things that are, that are the powers, Satan, demons, disease, death. When Jesus sends his disciples out to heal and to raise the dead, and when Jesus does these sort of things, this is the power of the kingdom at work. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. If, if I, by the Spirit of God... Uh, cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has has arrived. I think it's helpful for us to think of it in this way. When when we're in the final new creation again, there, there'll be no demons, there'll be no death, there'll be no disease. So Jesus' triumph over these things are, are sort of incursions of the kingdom. There are signs that the kingdom has come, the kingdom has arrived in his ministry and in his person. But, and this is just really important, Tony, uh, what also must be said is these acts of Jesus, these signs and wonders of Jesus, cannot be separated from Jesus' person, who he is, as the last Adam, or as the Gospels say, the Son of Man, the Servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord. He's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. And, and I think the kingdom com- becomes supremely, or at least maybe better foundationally, in the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus utters. So that, because I think many people miss this, so that in the Gospels, the, the kingdom is inseparably intertwined with Jesus' cross and resurrection. So it's not, it's not just signs, wonders, and miracles. But those signs, wonders, and miracles are, are based upon, fundamentally based upon, Jesus' work in the cross and the resurrection. And, and of course, each of the Gospels focuses on, don't they? They focus upon uh, the end of Jesus' life, what he's accomplished for us. Because in, in some popular circles today, and scholarly circles for that matter, the kingdom seems to be separated from Jesus' atoning work. And I don't think that's the storyline in any of the Gospels. And, and so then we can say as well, well, that ties in really nicely with Paul, doesn't it? Because in, for Paul, the already not yet is grounded in, in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. 
I want to talk for a moment about covenant theology, and for whatever reason, whole Bible biblical theology books sometimes can minimize the covenantal structure of Scripture. How do you approach the covenants in in your book, The King and His Beauty? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, first of all, I just want to say, uh, you know, there's there's the biblical theology, which I know you're familiar with, Tony, by Steve Wallum and Peter Gentry, titled Kingdom Through Covenant. And uh, anybody who reads my book will recognize that I've been significantly influenced by Gentry and Wellam. I learned I learned so much from them, and and of course they do structure their theology uh, via the covenants. Now my my approach is to go book by book, or at least when we go to the twelve prophets, I look at them as a whole. Nevertheless, I'd say the covenants play a very central role in my understanding of the kingdom. So we, we see in Genesis the, the covenant with Abraham, the promise of land, seed, and blessing, and that's what the covenant is. That, that is absolutely programmatic for the rest of the Pentateuch and actually the whole of Scripture. I mean, ultimately, this whole notion of, uh, of land which I think is fulfilled in the new creation, and then with seed or offspring, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then the universal blessing, which is fulfilled in the inclusion of the Gentiles, and again in the new creation with all the peoples that God blesses. That informs, I think, everything I'm doing and uh, the whole of Scripture. I, I don't know if you want me to speak of each covenant, but when we come to the Sinai covenant, which we find in Exodus, there is continuity and discontinuity with the covenant with Abraham. It's a distinct covenant, I think, made specifically with Israel. God exercises his rule over Israel as he enters into with them a covenant at Sinai. And And I think the Sinai covenant is a gracious covenant. God delivers his people from Egypt by his grace and through his power. But, and I'm going fast here, there's so much we could say, but I think what what sets the Sinai Covenant apart is those who are physically delivered aren't necessarily spiritually regenerated. So you have a whole generation that's, that's physically delivered, but not all of them truly uh, belong to the Lord. So when we, and I'm flying here, Tony, but when we come to the new covenant and the covenant with David, the covenant with David, of course, picks up the seed, the seed promise. And the covenant with David says that that promise of offspring given, given to Abraham, that promise is ultimately and finally f- going to be fulfilled in a, in a child of, of David. And, and naturally, the New Testament picks up on this and says that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's many Testament antecedents here. So, so fundamentally, the promise of Abraham and the promise of David is fulfilled in Jesus. The new covenant, in contrast, in Jeremiah, and I think it's different terminology, but I think we see it in Ezekiel and Isaiah and the other prophets. So the new covenant says that the, the law, or, or God's, God's word, will be placed on the hearts of God's people through, through the Holy Spirit. So he'll do that inner transforming work. So in some ways, the covenant with David and the new covenant fulfill that covenant with, with Abraham. They say that the, the, the offspring is Jesus. The sons of Abraham are now those who are circumcised in the heart, who have received the new covenant work of the Spirit. So 
Paul and, and I think Jesus himself, they pick up these themes and say, look, Gentiles who are regenerated, they are, they are the children of Abraham. The church, is, the church is the new Israel, and Jesus is the seed of Abraham. The only, the only way to be part of Abraham's family, the only way to inherit the new creation, is, is through Jesus Christ. So, so that finally the, the, the covenant with Abraham, the new covenant, is fulfilled again in the cross. We see this at the Lord's Supper. Now, I just said a lot of things there just very, very briefly. Yes, very brief but helpful. And uh, I want to transition a little bit from covenant to law. I mean, the role and value of the law in the Christian life will continue to be a question for the Church. And uh, you spend a lot of time uh, addressing this issue in books and in commentaries. But how does whole Bible biblical theology help to shape how you understand the law? Has anything changed for you in, in working on this project? You know, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I changed anything fundamentally in my understanding of the law, because that's an that's a issue I've been studying for a long time. But I think, I think it's of key importance, really, when we think of our history as uh, Protestants and as evangelicals, or we think more recently of what's called covenant theology and dispensational theology. It, it relates to how we put the Testaments together, how we put the whole Bible together, and naturally, the law is going to play a huge role in that. How do we understand the place of uh, of the law given the law given at Sinai? And and what I would say fundamentally here here I'm very close to Gentry and Wellam, what they call progressive covenantalism. Some or some people use the language of new covenant theology, but that that term has a lot of different meanings to people. But I but I would say. I would say that Christians are not under the Sinai Covenant. We are not under the law. I think Paul makes that clear. The law, the law given to Moses, uh, that law was intended for Israel. It belonged to that period of time, that era. That's not our covenant. That's, that arrangement wasn't made with us uh, specifically. So. So in one sense, and of course this is very tricky and important, of course it's still the Word of God. It still speaks to us today. It's still authoritative for us as Scripture. But as Christians, we're, we're not required to obey the specific prescriptions of the law per se. Most of those prescriptions are tied, for example, to the temple and to the priesthood and all, all the things connected there too. And I think that's clear in Hebrews and, and in Paul. So, having said that, how do we explain the fact that some of the commands of the law are reiterated in the New Testament and issued as authoritative for us? And by that I mean you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not murder, and so forth and so on. I don't think Paul operates fundamentally from a a moral, civil, ceremonial split, because I think the law as as a whole, we're not under that covenant. So, so why does he say certain commands of the law are authoritative? And I would argue that they are authoritative because they reflect God's will. They, they fundamentally reflect his character. So we're not under that covenant, but that doesn't mean, does it? it? That doesn't mean that everything in the law 
is, is limited to Israel. There are some transcendent commands in that law. How do we know what those transcendent commands are? We, we know those from reading the whole Bible. We can't, we can't just take out a certain command and say that command is necessarily authoritative. We, we have to read all of Scripture and see what the New Testament does with the Old. So I think that's the most helpful thing to say hermeneutically. So I'm comfortable by, with saying we're under the law of Christ, the law as transmitted by Christ, the law as explicated in the light of Christ's death and resurrection. Yes, and how important was the Mosaic law in order to preserve the Messianic lineage within Israel? Yeah, I, I, I think that's fundamentally the role it played. I think the law was given to Israel to, so that they'd be a holy people, consecrated to God, separated from nations, distinct from the nations. That's why when the New Testament comes along, it, was, it took time and it was difficult for these early Jewish believers to understand that these food laws and Sabbath laws and circumcision were no longer required. Because these were the sorts of things that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, and so they, 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 they you know, Peter in Acts ten and eleven, he, he, he's amazed and astounded that that God is telling him, don't worry about these food laws. But the role they played is they, they kept the Jews distinct from the Gentiles, so that they were a, a people consecrated and dedicated uh, to the Lord, and they didn't mix with the nations and become idolaters. So they, they struggled with that, as we know. They struggled with that plenty as it was. But I think that was the fundamental purpose of the law. My, my highlight in this book is the 17-page epilogue at the end. It's a relatively brief summary of the Bible, and I think Christians who have never tried to put their whole Bible together in one setting will be really served by this. Uh, this is really brilliant work, and I assume you wrote this because you have a heart for seeing pastors and Christians put their entire Bibles together and then to live out of that. Um, I'm reminded of a theologian like Kevin Van Hooser, who's really pressing the church right now to think of the Christian life as participation in God's theodrama, as he would say it. How would you explain the importance of understanding the whole Bible in order to live successfully this Christian life? Yeah, well, yeah, the first, the first thing I want to say is that you're, you're exactly right. I, I tried to, I don't know if I succeeded, I, I don't view this book as a technical difficult book to read. At least I hope it isn't. I mean, I know it's not, um, you know, a sixth grade book, but it's not, I, it's not, I wanted to write this book. At least it was my goal. I don't know if I succeeded so that ordinary Christians who want to study the Bible could pick up my book and read here. Here's the contribution of Genesis to biblical theology. And here's, here's what Sam, the books of Samuel say. So I, and, and even in writing that epilogue, if, if, only, if only someone read that epilogue and nothing else, I, I would hope it'd be helpful for them to see, look, here, here's, uh, here's the storyline of the Bible, just sort of simply put, so you could, you could see, see the whole. I was just really happy, Tony, that someone uh, who's leading a woman's Bible study, uh, they're going to use my book next year and go through the whole Bible. They thought this would be fun and just read each chapter. And that, that's the kind of thing I, I wrote it for. And, and yes, I resonate with Van Hooser. I, I want to see Lord willing this book used in, in, in churches and in the lives 
of ordinary Christians. You know, my book is The King and His Beauty. My first title was You Will See the King and His Beauty. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 33, verse 17. And this book isn't just about God fulfilling his plan, but what it means in our lives and what does it mean in our lives that finally we see and experience God as as we see as we understand his plan as we understand our place in it as we understand what it means as Christians to live under his lordship and his love we we see God we experience him we enjoy him we rejoice in him and and I think I think we rejoice in him more we we love him more we adore him more when we understand him better when we understand his plan better and and we see we see that it's amazing and when we understand the scriptures we see how great the redemption is that he accomplished and how as paul says in romans 11 how wise uh, and and unsearchable his plan is for us i think part of what that means for us individually is to give ourselves to give ourselves to the king every day to submit ourselves to him and and to and to realize in in reading and in prayer but that that we're part of something bigger than ourselves you know it's it is wonderful isn't it that the, the lord guides us personally and individually but we ought never to forget that he has a plan for the world and for the church, and we ought to lift our eyes and realize, I get to be a part of this, this, this entire plan. I get to be part of all that God is doing. And in our very individualistic Western culture, we can say it's, it's bigger than me. Praise God, it includes me. God loves us personally and individually. But also, we, we recognize that God is accomplishing his purposes for the world, that he's bringing in a new creation, and, and a, a whole new universe that, that we can enjoy and in which he'll be glorified. That was Tom Schreiner, who currently serves as the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He joined us from his office in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Schreiner is the author of a new book coming out in July, The King and His Beauty a biblical theology of the Old and New Testaments, published by Baker. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. And you can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.